Hey, what's up? My name is Stephen, and I lead Avenue Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, along with my wife and an incredible team. We really have a desire to see people experience God's unconditional love, find their true identity in Christ, and live out their purpose. And we would love to connect with you. You can find us on all social media platforms simply by searching Our Avenue Church. You can also check us out online by going to OurAvenueChurch.com. We really pray that something in this message inspires and equips you to experience the way of life you were created to live in Christ. Enjoy. All right, so we're in week two of a series that I'm calling Inspired, that we are taking a look in God's Word to see what God's Word says about itself. Um, We know that Scripture, according to Paul, is the inspired Word of God. But I don't want us just to know it's the inspired word of God. I want us to be inspired to read it and to be inspired to live it out. And I really believe, I said this last week, that 2023 can be your best life, your best year, if it's your strongest year spiritually. And the only way it's going to be your strongest year spiritually is if you grow in understanding and reading God's word. Because Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 4 familiar verse from last week. Just after he's been baptized, he goes out into the wilderness and it says that he's he's very hungry because he's been fasting for 40 days. And it says, the devil came and said to him, if you're really the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of who? God, right? And we look at this aspect that even within the church and the culture that is creeping into the church, we tend to satisfy our appetite on things separate from God's word. And we wonder why we're spiritually malnourished. And if you think about this, man doesn't live on bread alone. And, you know, if you think about your favorite sandwich spot in the city, whether it's, you know, Jersey Mike's, um, whether it's Lenny's Subs, Penn State, Subway's is kind of like way down there, like Jimmy John's, I can make that sandwich at home, right? Uh, but if you think about what is within those sandwiches, they all have different, different ingredients. And so is there something maybe that you, like was anybody a picky eater growing up? Like I was super picky. And there are certain things that I would not eat. I don't have a sense of smell, in case you didn't know that. I'm olfactory challenged and nasally impaired. Uh, It's great when I had babies and had to change diapers because I had to do it all. Um, But texture is a big thing to me because maybe my taste buds are just a little handicapped because of that. And so texture is a really, really big thing to me. But when I was growing up, I was super picky and I would not eat lasagna growing up because I didn't know what was in it. Is there anything like you, you don't eat because you don't know what's in it, right? It's like somebody, I don't eat sushi because I don't know what's in it, right? But whenever my mom would cook lasagna, she would have to make spaghetti for me because I could see what's in spaghetti. It's basically meat, sauce, and noodles. But lasagna, there's like layers and I can't see what's down in it. And then I finally tried lasagna and oh my gosh, it is way better than spaghetti, right? And so sometimes when we look at the word of God, maybe we have a hard time digging into it and and eating it may sound like a bad word, but that's what we're, we're to consume it spiritually because we don't really fully understand what's in it. 
because there's layers to it, just like there's layers in lasagna. And are we having lasagna today? Yes, my mother-in-law's in town and she made her lasagna. It just hit me. I was like, maybe we're having lasagna today. Um, praise God. Um, I'm gonna finish very quickly now so that I can, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. But here's the, like, like there are layers to God's word. And for some of us, um, and I said this last week, Within a congregation, we have people who have been walking with Christ for a long time, and we have people who maybe are new on their journey or inexperienced on their journey, and this can be intimidating. And so today, I want to help all of us maybe see God's word in a little bit different light and and understand what we hold in our hand. And so it's gonna be very practical today. Um, For those of you, this may be a refresher, but I want us to, to know what's in it. I want us to know the layers that we can peel back and be able to understand, like spaghetti and lasagna are very similar in ingredients, but I don't want you to just take the ingredients that, that I give you on a sermon and think that's all there is to it. I want you to go to the lasagna and pull back the layers and see that there's more good stuff in addition to just what I'm giving you on a Sunday morning, right? And so when we look, I want to give you just some real quick facts. Again, this is, this is going to be a lot of, actually not a few, there's going to be a lot of facts today because I want you to understand the facts of the Bible so that when you're turning the pages, you understand why what is there is there and why it's there in that particular spot, right? When we look at the Bible, it's, it's one book. It comes from this um, Greek word. The Greek word Bible actually comes from the Greek word biblia, which means book. And so the Bible is a book, but really it's not just a book. It is a library of books. There's 66 books within it. And it was written over the course of 1,600 years, so 1,000 600 years, this book was written across the course of 12 countries, three continents, by over 40 people in three different languages. That's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of chances for things to go wrong, but 1,600 years, 12 countries, three continents, three languages, um, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek over 40 people. And the crazy thing, when you look at the scripture from beginning to end, it was, it was written by not just pastors. It was written by priests and prophets. It was written by kings. It was written by shepherds and servants. It was written by heroes. It was written by nobodies. And it was written in places that you would not consider things that are inspired to be written. Like if you have devotions that you read, you know, um, a lot of times those are written in a nice cozy office. Scripture was written in caves, on ships, in islands, in prison. Most of the places that we would not want to write something that is God-inspired. We want to be God-inspired in our quiet time with our, you know, Caramel macchiato and the candles and music playing in the background. Paul's writing almost all of his letters from prison. And so when we understand the context and the place in which scripture is written, hopefully what we are reading begins to come alive a little bit more. And when we look at this this whole story from beginning to end, it tells the same story. How does that happen? 
because there is really just one author. Even though a bunch of different men penned it, they were all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when you look at these other religious writings, whether you know it's the the Quran or you know the writings of Confucius or these other religious, they are all written by one single individual flesh and bone person. And so it makes sense that it would have the same message. But when you look at this scripture, this word that we have, this religious writing, it's written by 40 different people who are inspired by the same Holy Spirit and they're all saying the same thing. That's pretty incredible. So when people say, how can the Bible be real? How can it really be of God? That is why, because the Holy Spirit spoke through. And, and, and Peter even says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, and it may say 1 Peter on the stage but, or on the screen, but it's, it's 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, we'll look in verse 19. Guys, get used to it. We're going to have lots of babies in the coming months. Let's go. It's, it's all good. We love you. We love you. Um, Peter is writing to the church here, and he's, he's describing what he and the other apostles got to experience while walking with Jesus. And he's saying these aren't just mere stories that we've made up. We got to walk with Jesus. We heard you know, the father's voice from heaven say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter's describing his experience at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he says this, he says, we also, talking about he and the apostles, we also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in the dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, talking about Jesus's return. And he's saying, because I've been walking around with Jesus, we have this prophetic message because of what we heard and what we saw, what we experienced while walking with Jesus. And so it's something that can be trusted. But then he goes on in verse 20 and he says, above all, say above all, that means above all, right? Above anything else, he says, do this. You must understand that no prophecy in scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. And what he's saying, like, like everything that was written in the Old Testament, he's referring to the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures, that everything that was written did not come about by the one who was writing it, whether it was Moses or whether it was David or whether it was Solomon. It's not by their own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. Saying really like, like when, when they were inspired, it wasn't because of their will, but prophets, though they were human, spoke from God as though they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so you've heard me quote the scripture that scripture is God breathes, Paul tells Timothy. It's, God, it's God's breath. It's God inspired. And so Peter's even saying that even, even though we read and they were human, the Old Testament prophets did not write things out out of their own interpretation and their own will. They were inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we are looking at this book, this library of 66 books, we have to understand and remember men wrote these as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So God penned it through these men. So we're going to give you just some practical things and kind of seeing how the Bible is laid out. It's, it's one, one book, 66 books, two sections, the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
And, you know, I was probably 23, maybe when I'm 22, when I realized that the Bible, as we have it mostly, is not in chronological order. So when you're starting in Genesis, and then as you're reading through, the, like it's not all in chronological order. Actually, if you were to read it in chronological order, and the order in which things happened, you would read Genesis and then Job. But Job's further along, like that doesn't make sense. And so I would like to encourage you, if you've not done that, try that. Read it. It, it makes things look a little bit different. It helps you understand. But the way most Bibles are aligned and set up is they are, are, are listed through literary types. Um, and so we have the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament. It's the story of, of creation. It's the story of God choosing his people, the children of Israel, and their you know, desire for a king like everyone else. And you see seasons of rebellion and seasons of faithfulness and and kings set on thrones, kings taken down from thrones. Um, and so we see this Old Testament, and it's broken down into sections. Can I share those with you so that you kind of have an idea? Some of you may know, but I, if you don't, today you'll know. Um, the Old Testament is Genesis through Deuteronomy. is the first five books of the Old Testament. These are the books of the law. That's where we get the Ten Commandments. And then even on top of the Ten Commandments, you get to Leviticus. And this is where those of us who, who do a Bible reading plan, we get to Leviticus, we struggle. Because there's all these things that don't make any sense to our culture today because we have to realize it's written to a culture that is not of today's. And so, but we're looking at, at God really setting these laws in place to show us that we cannot find salvation by our own merit and own actions. Now, those that are like, as it's happening, they don't realize that. But us looking back now, it's like proof that we can't do it on our own. So then when we get through Deuteronomy, next comes Joshua. Um, through Esther, Joshua through Esther, these are the books of history to where we see the formation of the children of Israel and their chosen kings, their fallen kings. You know, the first couple of lines of the book of Joshua, uh, God comes to him and says, good morning, Moses, my servant is dead. You're going to be the one to lead my people into the promised land. And then we begin to see them walking into the, into the promised land. And it's incredible stories of, of judges and prophets and priests and kings, and there's battles and there's drama and there's all these things that take place. But then when we move out of, out of Esther into Job, all the way through the Song of Solomon or Song of Psalms, these are what's called the poetry books. And this helped me understand knowing that the poetry books were written during the timeline as we're reading the history books. Does that make sense? So as David is hiding in the wilderness from King Saul, he is writing some of the poetry and songs that we see in the book of Psalms. And it would be really cool if you could just take the layers and recognize, and actually, in your study guide for this week, I've got one that I encourage you to read, to see the layers of where David was when he wrote a specific psalm. But we have to go back and read First or Second Samuel to see where David was to understand, understand Psalm 7. Does that make sense? It's context into the story and how things are playing out. But sometimes we just get through the history books and we think David lived to his old age and then he started to write, write, write psalm. 
He waited till he retired in his castle. He wasn't writing it. He was writing it in caves in the wilderness, running for his life. So then we move out of the poetry books and then we get into the prophets. Isaiah through Malachi. Are you guys still with me? Good, right? I know it's a lot of information, but Isaiah through Malachi. These were also being written during the history periods. So just as the kings were being set up, God was sending these prophets to prophesy to the children of Israel on how they needed to live, how they needed to repent. And these were all written down. The first four are the major prophets, not because they said anything super important that was more important than the others. It's just they're longer. They're the major prophets because they're longer. And then the other ones are the minor prophets because they are Shorter. Okay, good. You, you can pick up on that. They were shorter. And then the very last book in the Old Testament is a minor prophet. It's called Malachi. And the Old Testament ends there. It ends there. And then for 400 years, God was silent. Scholars call this the silent years. 400 years, God's not sending any new prophets. He's not saying anything new. He is just completely Silent. I don't know if it's because his kids were acting up and he just wasn't going to say anything else and like making plans. Like this is silent years. And it's during that time, the Greek conquest happens and Alexander the Great takes over the known world and then he falls and Rome sets up its kingdom. And then we finally get to Matthew. God's been silent for 400 years. The New Testament, he begins to speak again. First through John the Baptist who is actually fulfilling one of the prophecies from Isaiah, where Isaiah says that a voice will call out in the wilderness, make way, clear a path for the Messiah. That was John the Baptist, God speaking through him. And then we know God speaks through Jesus because he says, whatever the Father says is what I say. And we look at um, the first four books in the New Testament. They are called the... Gospels. Good job. We got it. All right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call it's a, the synoptic gospels, which means they all pretty much say the same thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pretty much all say the same thing, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke say the same thing. John says things a little bit different. So let's look at how each of these gospels are a little bit different one from another. Let's peel back the layers on the lasagna, if I can use that analogy, right? So let's start with Matthew, okay? Um, go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter one, and we're gonna take a look. I told you guys to bring your Bibles um, so we can just kind of get a, get a handle on it. Go to Matthew chapter one, and, and Matthew, each of the gospels has a specific perspective that it's writing towards, and Matthew is portraying Jesus... Jesus as the coming king and as the Messiah. Um, as the, and he's speaking primarily, writing this primarily to those of the Jewish faith. And so when you look at trying to proclaim that someone is the king, what you're gonna look at is you're gonna look at their family tree. You're gonna look at the lineage. And so that's how Matthew starts out. When you look in the first chapter, first few verses of Matthew, we see Matthew saying, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. And then he goes into all these, Abraham was a father of Isaac, Isaac was a father of Jacob, all the way down to Jesus. And what he's doing is he's using the lineage of Jesus to prove that he is the next king of Israel. 
right? And then what Matthew focuses on as far as context is the teachings of Jesus. It's in Matthew that we find the Sermon on the Mount. And even when you're looking in the first couple of chapters, we see that Jesus is is healing the sick and casting out demons, but there's no details to it. Matthew just mentions it. Jesus is, he says he's proclaiming the good news and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's also healing some people. That's different than some of the other gospels. The first thing that we see deep description on is Jesus's teachings. So Matthew focuses on Jesus's teachings with the Sermon on the Mount and really digging, digging into that. And it's written by a Jew to a Jew, proving the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now we get to Mark, Matthew, Mark. Mark was actually not, you know, one of the original disciples. He was a missionary that traveled with Paul. His, and when you read it in the book of Acts, it's a guy named John Mark. That's who wrote this. And John Mark and Paul got into a little skirmish and, you know, Mark kind of chickened out and wouldn't go on a mission trip, but then sometime later came back into relationship with Mark. And, and he wrote this from Peter's memories and conversation. And it's actually the shortest of all the gospels, kind of meant to be handed down orally, um, verbally. And his portrayal of Jesus is as a suffering servant. And so if you would turn to Mark and just kind of look at, you know, the first few chapters even of Mark, before there's ever a teaching, we see right out of the gate that Jesus is, is healing. Before we even get out of Mark chapter 1, we see in detail Jesus casting out an evil spirit. Jesus heals many people. Jesus preaches in Galilee. Oh, and now Jesus is going to heal a man with leprosy. This is all before we get out of chapter one. And the focus on this is on Jesus's works and miracles to show his authority, okay? Matthew was to show his lineage to be the king. Mark is to show his authority and power in healing the sick. And it was the earliest written, as a matter of fact, it's probably what Matthew and Luke started their assignment on was by going from Mark. You still with me? Still with me? All right. Um, then we go to Luke. Luke was not a disciple as well. He was a physician um, who turned uh, investigative reporter. And his portrayal of Jesus was not as the king, not as a servant who performed all these great miracles, but his portrayal is that he is the savior of all. That's where we read the Christmas story, right? Pretty much every Christmas, that's the, that's the depiction of Jesus's birth that we read because it proclaims that today unto you a savior is born in the house of David, right? For all. And so when we see this, what, what Luke is trying to do, he's not focusing on the teaching or the miracles, but he's actually trying to put into place as like a detective and I don't know if he had like in his room, he had one of those boards with the red lines and threads going everywhere and dry erase markers. It's like, this is where it happened. And this is where they said it happened, but it wasn't. This was the time frame. And so he's doing all these investigative um, conversations and questioning to put, because he even says this in Luke chapter one, he says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They've used eyewitness reports circulating among them from the early disciples, And then he says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account 
for you, most honorable Theopolis, so you can be certain of the truth. He put all the details there in chronological order so that we can be certain that it really, really happened. And then we get to John. Um, John doesn't mention himself in his gospel by name. Instead, he says it was, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when there's the race to the tomb at the end, after Jesus's resurrection, it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved got there first. He was really thought really highly of himself, right? And so he's writing from a little bit different perspective. His focus is not on Jesus as king. Jesus is a servant performing miracles, not on Jesus as the savior. But he wants us fully to understand that Jesus is God. And so he goes back beyond before creation where Genesis says, in the beginning, the earth was void. He goes back beyond. Further than that, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1, 14, it says, the Word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. And so he is trying to say, look, Jesus is, is, is not just a Messiah. He's not just a servant, not just a rabbi, but Jesus is God, and he focused on the statements and the miracle. So, so not just the teachings, but Jesus made these seven statements, and I did a series on it our first year called I Am. He makes these seven I Am statements to where I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. He makes these seven statements. John focuses on those, but then he also focuses on the miracles of Jesus. But honestly, and I didn't realize this until like studying the last few weeks, he doesn't list as many miracles as Mark. He doesn't list as many miracles as even Luke. He only lists seven. And we know Jesus performed way more miracles than that. John even says in one part, he says, if I were to write it all down, all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that I saw Jesus do. But he writes the miracles from a little different perspective in that he wants to show the spiritual implication and application of how these miracles are taking place. And he is writing from a standpoint that we would be inspired to believe that Jesus is God. And so here's one of the things that I wanna invite you to do. This week, go back and read, pick one of the gospels. You're like, I'm picking Mark, it's the shortest, right? <laughs> like, like pick one of the gospels and try to read it with as few breaks as possible so that you can get the whole picture because it's, if, if you're like me, if you read something and go back two or three days later and try to pick back up where you left off, you gotta go back a few verses, go back a few pages, like what did I read before? So try to read it with as few breaks as possible so that you can get the whole story, but now read it with the understanding of what I just shared, how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote it from their perspective and their intention, and it's my prayer that you'll see something a little bit different. And so then we get to Acts. Jesus has ascended into heaven and we get to Acts and Acts is really the historical telling of the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And it says that, that they were all gathered together um, for the celebration, for the Passover celebration, not the Passover, but the festival of Pentecost. And it says the Holy Spirit 
um, is poured out. And there's all these Jewish followers from other countries that speak different languages that have not heard the gospel because it has not been experienced in their language, okay? You have to understand that. They are Jewish, but they've not really heard about Jesus because it's not been spoken in their language. And so they're celebrating at this festival of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is released. All the apostles and the disciples begin to speak in other tongues. And these Jewish men and women who came into the city to celebrate are now hearing the gospel for the first time in their language, in their language. And so the gospel, the good news is released outside of that area into other parts of the world within the Jewish faith. You're still following me. And then we fast forward into another chapter of Acts, chapters 10 and 12, because at this point, Christianity and the gospel is just confined to the Jewish people. Then in Acts chapter 10, it is released outside of the Jewish community into what scripture calls the Gentiles and to the Romans and the Greeks and the Thessalonians and, and outside of those of the Jewish faith. These are pagans worshiping other gods, not a Jew worshiping the one true God, not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Does that make sense? This is huge that it's now going outside of the Jewish faith. And we see all of these churches that are being planted throughout the known world by the apostles. And then we get into the letters from Romans all the way to Jude. Romans all the way to Jude. We're, we're almost there. The whole Bible in like 15, 20 minutes. You with me? All right. Um, Romans to Jude. And these aren't really books. These are letters that are written by pastors and apostles to the church and other church leaders to help them understand how to walk out this Christian faith according to the teachings and the revelations of Jesus. And so, yes, they're books, but they're also letters. And the, just like, okay, just like when we were talking about the Old Testament, when we have the books of prophecy and we have the books of poetry and, you know, Psalms and Song of Solomon and Proverbs, just as they were written in line with the books of history, okay, these letters to the church were also written in line with what's taking place in Acts. Does that make sense? So as these guys are planting churches, they're also writing these letters that line up with what's taking place in the book of Acts. And then after we go through Jude, we get to the last book in the Bible that is probably the most interesting and the most confusing and people wanna talk about it and preach about it, but we really won't know until we get here and it is the book of Revelation, right? And it actually comes from the Greek word. I'll see if I can say this right. The Greek word um, apocalypto, which means apocalypse. And it is prophecies about the end times and the new heaven and the, the, the final defeat of our great enemy. And we read all that like, Anybody overwhelmed just by thinking of that, right? It's like, like, even as I'm thinking process, like I just gave my people a whole lot of information. Uh, but I want you to understand the layers that are there and how it all connects, that all these 40 different plus authors were all writing the same story from Genesis, creation, to Revelation, the prophecy about the apocalypse. And so what's, what is that story? It's a story of redemption. It's a story of restoration. And every story has a main character. 
And when we look in scripture, some people would say that if you were to ask, well, who's the main character in the word of God? And selfishly, sometimes we would say, well, it's people, it's us. Um, Because God's coming to save his people, right? But the truth is the main character of the Bible from beginning to end is Jesus. Is Jesus. And I did a series back last spring called Storyline, that every story whispers his name. And you may think, but Jesus isn't mentioned to Matthew, right? If you're not accustomed to reading your Bible and it's like, well, I don't see that name mentioned until we get to Matthew and he's born. He lives, he dies. We get to, to Mark, he's born, he lives, he dies like over and over. But G- Jesus is even all throughout the Old Testament that we see him show up as like foreshadows that he's coming, um, we even see a character in the Old Testament at times that's called Angel of the Lord, right? And we know that there's Gabriel and there's Michael and there's these guys, but then there's this, this guy that shows up, Angel of the Lord or Commander of the Lord's Army. And most scholars believe that that is Jesus pre-incarnate before he was born, entering into creation and interacting with God's people. But then we also see Jesus foreshadowed in the life of Isaac in the Old Testament, who was the son of Abraham, who was offered as a sacrifice, but then was returned to his father. Jesus was offered as a sacrifice, but then returned to us, right? And so we see Jesus all throughout the Old Testament, through the New Testament. And the religious leaders that Jesus interacted with did not get this. They were still looking for the Messiah to come. They were still trying to get all the answers from Scripture. And this is, this is what Jesus told them. He says in John 5, 39, he says, listen, you search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. He says, you search the Scriptures thinking they give you eternal life, but this is what Scriptures do. He says, the Scriptures point to, what does he say? To me. He says, all of Scriptures point To me, Jesus is the main character beginning to end. What's the plot? Every good story has a plot. You may say, well, the plot is love. No, we'll get to that in a minute. The plot is just give. That is what our God does, is he gives. And it's like, yeah, he's always given us commands. He's given us more rules to follow. No, from the very beginning, he gave Adam and Eve the the Garden of Eden. And he gave them every tree except one. He gave them dominion over all the land. We see even going on that that he gives freedom to his children as he's released out of Egypt. We see him give David a king that will be eternal on the throne out of his lineage. And then we see in the New Testament, he gives us salvation and freedom from sin freedom from guilt. He's a giving God. And we know this first, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So he gave, but he gave out of a motive of loved for God so loved. Um, that was his why. Deuteronomy 7, it's not on the screen, but You know, this is the Old Testament verse that kind of mirrors this to some degree. God's talking to his people and he says, for you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. And he says, of all the people on earth, listen, like of all the people, he's talking to the children of Israel. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure 
And he says, listen, he says, the Lord did not set his heart upon you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations. He says, listen, God didn't choose you. I didn't choose you because you were more numerous because you were the greatest of all the nations. He says, in fact, like you're not even near the greatest. You are the smallest of all the nations. You are the weakest of all the nations. He said, I didn't even choose you because you're the weakest. He says, I simply set my heart on you because I love you. No ulterior motive than love. No ulterior motive than love. And like one of the biggest misconceptions, and maybe you're here today and you you look at this and you think, well, in past church experiences, all I've ever heard preached, or it seems like the majority of what I hear preached is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Like that's what this Christian life is, is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this, these things. And, you know, we follow God's commands. We follow his decrees. We walk in obedience. We do all those things. And it's like, that's because he's trying to control us. We can have that mindset. But even that, listen, even that comes from a place of love. Kind of joked in first service. How many of you guys have pets? Like, you know, like, like a dog or a cat that's outside. Like if you live um, next to a highway, a major highway, and you just let your dog run loose, go wherever he wants to go. We'll start with dogs, then we'll work our way up, work with, right? Um, you let your dog just run loose, and there's a highway nearby. Is it loving not to put some boundaries for your dog and that he can just wander out into the highway, the interstate? What's going to happen when he goes out there? He's going to get flattened, right? She's going to get flattened. It's like, oh, it's so horrible. That's, that could very well happen. But what we do is we put a leash on our dog or we keep him inside or we build a fence for our dog so that within that boundary, he has complete freedom and he's completely safe. It may seem cruel, but you let the dog outside of that boundary, death is on the other side of it. For those of you who have kids, we're, we're raising kids the best we can, trying to figure it out. I thought I had all the answers and then I became a parent. As a youth pastor, I knew exactly how parents needed to raise their teenagers. Now that I have teenagers, I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> right? But to some degree, I do have an idea because I'm basing it off this. And, and you know, one of the things that I always have and, you know, it's part of being a PK is, you know, my kids are told that there are some things that you see your friends do that you're not gonna get to do. And I encourage you, if you're living for the Lord, to set that same boundary for your kids. And there are some things that your kids aren't going to have that other people have. And it seems so unfair and it seems so cruel, but we're lining it up according with God's word because what are we doing? We're putting a fence of safety around our kids. Why would a loving God not do the same thing? That he knows outside the boundaries of his word, and we're going to talk about what that looks like in the next year. Outside the boundaries of this, there's death and destruction and trouble. But if we can stay inside these boundaries at times, um, all the time actually, there is safety and there is freedom and there is life within that, amen, right? And so we have to understand the context in which some of these things are written from Old Testament to New Testament to be able to understand the boundaries and why they're there. And just to repeat what Jesus said last week, and I'll say it again, he says, these words that I have given you are spirit and life. 
And the word spirit is actually the Greek word for breath. These words that he's given us of, of instruction and correction and direction and all these things, they are to bring life to us and refresh us. And so Avenue Connect 97,000, here's what I want you to do. Like, do that, download the study guide for this week, the discussion guide. Take your, sun, your, your Sunday sermon into your Monday or go to ouravenuechurch.com slash sermons, download it from there. Um, read one of the gospels this week in line with some of the perspective that I've given you. Read some of the Psalms, understanding where they were written so that God's word can be opened up a little more to us than what we have. Because I don't want to just feed you well on Sunday. I want you guys to be able to feast on Monday through Saturday so that you can nourish your spirit and your soul. Amen. All right. I know that's a lot. I feel like I'm at a, like a teaching conference, but I want you to have tools and stock your pantry so that you can feed yourself. Can we pray together? Father, I just come to you this morning. I thank you for your word. Um, God, I thank you that sometimes it is weighty, that it is heavy, but it's by lifting it, um, God, by opening it, by holding it, by consuming it, reading it, we grow stronger. And God, as we can get a fresh perspective on how it's laid out and, and how you inspired it and how it was written, God, that you will begin to reveal and um, illuminate things within our life that we need to adjust. Um, so God, open the, the ears and the eyes of our heart as we dig more into our word than maybe we have before. God, let us be inspired and challenged to know you more by encountering you in your word. And God, if there's anyone in here today that, that has seen the Bible as, as condemning and correcting, God, let it, let it be seen as a letter of love. And if they do not have a relationship with you, God, that something they experienced here today would help them know that you love them unconditionally. God, that we don't have to get everything in order to come to you, that we come to you so that you can put everything in order. God, that you reveal the hidden things so that you can deal with them and make us healthy and whole. And so if there's anyone here today that does not have a relationship with you, God, I pray that they simply just say, Jesus, I give you my life. It's a simple statement, but it comes with a great reward and a great sacrifice, both from your life and in ours, that we turn to you and follow your ways, turning away from the world and its ways and our selfish ways. So God, for those that are saying yes to you, even this moment, God, I pray that you would wrap your arms of love around them let them know they are forgiven, forgiven, they are saved, they are loved, and they are chosen. Not because of how great they are, how lowly they are, but simply because you love them. So God, help us on Monday to live out what we learn about today. In Jesus' name, amen.